Um, I have been preaching with my comrades and cohorts uh, the wisdom of God, and we've wanted to look at that from three voices, one in the Proverbs, and the Proverbs speak of God's wisdom that's fully completed in Jesus. So we need to see Proverbs in light of Jesus. We need to hear the voice of Jesus as He is God's wisdom embodied. And we're kind of organizing our way through the book of James, kind of the New Testament book of Proverbs um, and all that He has to say. So I'm reading texts from all of those. This morning, we'll start in the book of Proverbs. Uh, You'll find these also listed in your sermon outline bulletin insert and can follow that way. Uh, Hear the Word of God as I read. First from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 22, 16. One who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth and one who gives gifts to the rich, both will come to poverty. Proverbs 22, 22 and 23. Do not exploit the poor just because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court. For the Lord himself will take up their cause and will exact life for life. From the book of Mark, this is actually repeated in all three synoptic gospels, but we read from Mark. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Why, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And finally, from the book of James, our text for today, James 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak truth to us, that even as you moved upon these authors across centuries, you've carefully preserved these texts with your anointing to speak to us in this day. Guard us from the sin which is mine, but may we see the good news of the gospel and the hope of Jesus in each and every reflection and word this day. Fill us with grace and hope, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Three things that move through uh, this text that I was drawn to as I prepared this week 
kind of give us a direction of where we'll be going. The first, I was surprised we really need to be clear about who James is speaking to. Who's the audience? Then we can better understand what James is saying to them. And finally, I want to close with a question for you. Who is speaking to you? As we begin this morning, I want to tell you a tale about two doctors in our family's life. One, I don't even remember his name. You see, my family tends to have high cholesterol. It's been a medical issue for my brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents, my mom's side. I remember one day I found a doctor. We had just moved to a community, and so he did a workup. Marilyn was there as he gave us the stuff, and this doctor was reading through things, and he looked at me and said, you know, your cholesterol is only a problem if it's higher than your doctor's. You don't have a problem. When we got home and Mary Lynn began to call a friend to find another doctor. <laughs> and then there's Dr. Christian Wold in Alexandria, Louisiana. Now I'll tell you something about Christian. He's a board certified otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon. And we'd come to him about five months after a long wait for schedules, get a test, get the test back, see another doctor, get a test. Get a... And I'll never forget Dr. Wold walking in. He gave a quick eye to me and then sat down on a stool and about 12 inches away from Mary Lynn, looked into her eyes and said, Mary Lynn, you need to hear me on this. It's cancer and we're gonna treat it like cancer. I believe we have good outcomes, but it's cancer and you need to know that and we're gonna deal with this, all right? Now, which of those two doctors served us well? Mary Lynn's here, she's alive and well, she has moved on, but there was that moment where we heard the C word that no one wants to hear. But when it's your situation, you need to hear. You see, there are times that you really do want straight talk. And you particularly want straight talk from someone who knows what they're talking about and who can act in your best interest. As I was studying and praying and working on this text, interacting with Luke and Aaron, we're talking about it, I couldn't help but remember Dr. Wold. He knew I was in the room, but he was focused on Mary Lynn. And he wanted to perceive how this landed for her. He wanted to make sure he communicated. He wanted to be straightforward. We were well served by straight talk, even though it's nothing we wanted to hear. So this morning, one of the interesting things that we have to settle is who is James speaking to? It's interesting, you can read through the commentators, I won't go into depth on this, but you'll see some of them would say, oh, James must be speaking to outsiders, not his church people, not his congregation or the congregations he knows. He's speaking to outsiders. There's a language clue. He says in the text, you rich, rather than brothers and sisters, which he's been saying all along. Uh, the other thing that kind of stands out as different in this passage is the fiery language. Did you notice that? 
whoa, it was kind of nerve-wracking to read it to you. And what pastor would give his people fiery language, in parentheses, and keep his job? Yeah, there's fiery language, and we know as well, as deeply influenced as James is by the Old Testament, we know that prophets often speak to foreign nations. And so you'll get Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or Micah, and they'll make statements to Egypt or to Babylon. Now, that would be a little bit like a pastor in the Canary Islands speaking about the United States. But when you're speaking for God, it matters. So some folks feel like, mm, must be outsiders. After all, who could speak to the family of faith like that? But I want to tell you, most commentators, and certainly I, come to the conclusion that James is speaking to people he knows and loves, the very same people he's been speaking to all along. It's not like he gets here, he changes his focus and says, fire, and then goes back. He's been challenging us all along. He's reminded us that the anger of people doesn't establish the righteousness of God. He's told us that we need to let the the word planted in us bear fruit. He's told us that a faith that doesn't show itself in the fruit of the Spirit is dead. Oh, he can say tough things. So I think he's speaking to church people. To the 12 tribes, he begins in 1-1. He sees the church as the new expression the true and perfect that God began with the 12 tribes of Israel, now with faith in Christ scattered among the nations. He speaks to them as brothers and sisters because they do share life. And he speaks to the wealthy all through this book in James. There's a lot said about money. So even though the tone seems intense, I think we need to read this for ourselves. This isn't for someone else. This is for us. And as I settled on that, began to continue praying and um, focusing on that, it occurred to me, one of the key things here is that that tells us that the people of God had someone that they trusted to speak hard gospel to them. They didn't just gather people who would tickle their ears or reinforce their brokenness. They needed to hear hard gospel sometimes. You really do want straight talk. So this morning, I want to let this kind of be straight hard talk for us, but I want it to point us to the important need every one of us has in a number of areas to hear straight, hard talk. How do you receive straight, hard talk that can shape your life for the better, that can bear fruit in the gospel, that is the way James intends it here? Well, let's dig in a little more and ask this second point. What is James saying to them exactly? Let me read it to you again, just because it's so, whoa. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. 
Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not even opposing you. Here's the beginning of the question we'll dig into. Who can say that to you and to me when we need it? Let's back off a little and dig into this slowly. First of all, um, what is James saying to them? Well, he's talking about resources and, and money, and he's got some very direct things to say to them but it's only what the Scripture has said from first to last. Let me race through some Bible highlights. This would be an important study, but the Bible says so much about money that I couldn't do it all in one sermon. And it's important that you be able to look at everything to get the balance of the Scripture. What most folks like to do is to pick their favorite money verses Ignore the ones that are uncomfortable. There are whole TV networks that claim to be Christian that will never preach that text. Listen to what the Bible says. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 15, 1 through 2. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. What kind of 30-year mortgage could you get if it was going to be canceled after seven years? None. Our whole economy is built on a different perspective. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall, union home mortgage for me, every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts had been proclaimed. This is as Israel is about to head in and settle in the promised land. This is how God is structuring their life and economy together. A few chapters later, Deuteronomy 24. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. This is Deuteronomy. There are people who use bankruptcy as a business plan. Go to court, leave your contractors and suppliers on the hook. Pay every night so the laborer can feed his family. Jeremiah 22, woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. So from the establishment of the nation, now the prophets speak, 
And you heard how James said, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. He's just picking up a theme from Amos. This is too hot to touch. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Why is Amos complaining about the livestock? Oh, he goes on next to say, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. This is hard stuff. And you saw this morning in Proverbs, do not exploit the poor because they are poor. You heard Jesus in Mark 10. It's hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. It's as hard as getting a a camel through the eye of a needle. Jesus uses hyperbole here to show that something that is humanly impossible, and Jesus uses that word, not hard, impossible. Something that's humanly impossible can only happen by God's grace. Yes, it's amazing. We're challenged with things here. The Bible has a lot to say about money, and not all of it is comfortable for us. Here's what I want you to see. The people of God had someone like James they trusted to speak hard truth to them. See, this is a hard topic for us to deal with. Here's how I'd summarize the the Bible on money. Wealth comes with huge risks, distractions, and responsibilities. James tells the people in his church that they're sitting on their gold and silver. It'll corrode. It'll speak judgment. God has blessed us with gold and silver to invest for the benefit of others. Big bank account or a new business that can provide jobs? Which way would it push us? Look as well, we've not paid off the debts we have. People have worked and we've not done it. Look at these things. You'd have to say overall, this is my summary, that wealth comes with huge risks, distractions, and responsibilities. We need to prayerfully grow and learn and see and understand those. But it's a challenge, this particular topic, because, well, we live in the United States. I'm told by linguists, people who are far smarter than me, that you can get a sense of each culture by its vocabulary. Desert nations have lots of different words for sand. Eskimo people have lots of different words for snow. You know our unique contribution to vocabulary? Money words. T-bills, prime rate, Dow. We've generated and generated and generated. Indeed, there is something unique, and I say this as a church historian looking over 20 centuries of the development of the church. If there's a unique contribution of the United States, particularly in our moment, it's what I'd call the cult of prosperity. And I am not going to take time to list particular preachers and particular things that they get distracted with. But friends, and I've put it on the blog if you want to get into different things, this is so pervasive in our world. It's like the air that we breathe. I don't need to identify a particular prosperity preacher because it affects every one of us. 
It's not always been so. You see, the gospel confronts the wisdom of the world, both in making money and in what to do with it, and our responsibility for it. There's an interesting story about John Wesley. John Wesley, we remember as the founder of the Methodist movement, had a deep impact on the United States in the 19th century and continues with tremendous power across the world now, a world movement, but it began in England. While a college student at Oxford, an incident changed Wesley's perspective on money. He had just finished paying for some pictures for his room when one of the chambermaids came to the door. It was a cold winter day, and he noticed that she had nothing to protect her except a thin linen gown. He reached into his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat, but found he had too little left. Immediately, the thought struck him that the Lord was not pleased with the way he had spent his money. He asked himself, will thy master say, well done, good and faithful steward? Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money which might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? Perhaps as a result of this incident in 1731, and we pick up these details from his journals, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records that one year his income was 30 pounds, he was British, and his living expenses 28 pounds, so he had two pounds to give away. The next year his income had doubled, but he still managed to live on 28 pounds, so he had 32 pounds to give to the poor. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Instead of letting his expenses rise with his income, he kept them to 28 pounds and gave away 62. In the fourth year, he received 120. And as before, his expenses were 28. He now gave 92 pounds that year. This practice begun at Oxford continued throughout his life, even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds sterling. He lived simply, and he quickly gave away his surplus money. One year, his income was a little over 1,400 pounds. He lived on 30 pounds and gave the rest away. Because he had no family to care for, he had no need for savings. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth, so the money went out in charity as quickly as it came in. He reports that he never had a thousand pounds in his possession at any one time. A few years back, I heard a sermon from a Reformed guy. That's Wesley the Armenian. Here, Tim Keller, the Presbyterian. He challenged his congregation in Manhattan. One of the standards a Christian has to ask is this, is my standard of living going up as fast as my income? You know what his answer to that? It must not. Our income is not the driving force for our standard of living. The gospel is. And so you see, the gospel confronts the wisdom of the world. But are we in a position to hear that and to receive it and be shaped by it? There's the challenge. I'm painfully aware as a pastor how there are many topics 
that I believe the gospel calls me, calls us as a community to speak hard truth, not only to ourselves, but to our world. Here's one. I could give you a list of about five, but I'll just give you one. Cohabitation, living together before marriage. You know, the research is really clear. If you'd like some, read up on Dr. Scott Stanley. He's a research professor at the University of Denver. Or Dr. Brad Wilcox, faculty at University of Virginia, director of the Institute of Family Studies. It's very clear that cohabitation lowers the chances of a fruitful marriage in five years. Live together before married, you're not testing out the relationship, you're building a pattern is what they'll say. The gospel gives a hard truth to the world and to us. Look in the area of sexuality. I believe the gospel would say that not every desire or impulse is to be gratified or affirmed. Not gonna go into any details here. I've had desires that the gospel told me, don't affirm, repent of them. At this stage of my life, I'm thankful. So you see, just like Dr. Wold spoke clearly to Mary Lynn, and just as James speaks clearly to his people and to us, so it's critically important. Who is speaking to you? Who can get access to your heart? It's a challenge because we live in a time of consumer church. What's your guess? If I were to preach 20 sermons like this in a row, how many folks would be anxious to consider a different service or a different place? In the United States today, you can find a church that'll tell you what you want to hear. Right? Am I the only one? But somewhere in the midst of this consumer church mindset, we need to, just as James spoke hard truth to his people, we need to find safe, fruitful ways that the hard things that we need for our life can be spoken and received. That's how discipleship grows mature Christians. Now let me remind you of a concept as we dig into this right here at the end. When I minister with folks, I've got a picture of how Jesus navigated relationships that I bring into my own life and I encourage you for yours. Three, four circles of relationship. The three, Jesus had Peter, James, and John. They'd go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Three guys who knew the secret things of his life and heart. He was surrounded by 12 guys. His disciples, they did life together. They preached and they taught and they multiplied and one of them fell away. But the three, the 12, and then the 72, there came a time that from the larger crowd, he sent people out to extend the good news of the gospel. Three, 12, 72. And then Jesus always had a vision for every person on the planet, 7.7 billion right now. And so it is, I encourage folks, try to identify who's in your circle of three, three people who know you at the depth of your brokenness, who could speak hard things to you, 
because you know they love you and you love them. Twelve people who you're navigating life with have some insight and share things. Seventy-two people who you recognize. Maybe you bump into them at, at the mire and you go, oh, Hardawike, yeah. Seventy-two, the twelve, and the three. What I'm asking you, is there anybody in your circle of three who could say to you, you know, I see this pattern in your life and I think it comes from a heart that's wounded or prideful or whatever. Is there somebody who can speak hard things of the gospel in love that God can use to shape your life? I hadn't realized this would be my closing text in John 10, until Saturday, and then I saw God plan the whole service to this moment. In John 10, Jesus says, I myself am the good shepherd. And he talks about a thief who'll come in, but a good shepherd who'll guard the flock. It's a powerful passage, but right at the center of it stands this one statement, my sheep listen to my voice. You know what marks a believer in Christ? that we hear his voice, not simply a task list that we implement, but that he guides and he speaks. When James is speaking to his congregation, this hard truth, it's as if that's the voice of Jesus speaking deeply to him. We need that. We need people who can speak to the depth of our heart, who can speak to our brokenness, our sin, our fears, our wounds, and bring them to the cross of Christ where there's hope and joy. My sheep listen to my voice. Do you have people in your close circle, people who can, uh, you've put them in this position of influence. Do you have those people? First question. Second question, are they gospel-centered and capable, or are they world-centered? You don't want people at the center of your heart speaking the wisdom of the world. You want people who can help you navigate the pathways of your heart in light of the gospel of God's grace. You don't want to fill your close circle with people who simply guard your ego. Even more to the point, I want to close with this question. How do you function in the lives of your close friends? Can you speak words of gospel-centered grace to them or just pass along the wisdom of the world? You see, if the only way for you to get words of gospel grace is to come and hear a preacher, I have fallen short. What I want to be used of in, God, in your life every Sunday to remind you of the gospel, but I also want to see cultivated in you a heart that hears the voice of the good shepherd and a voice that can help others hear that voice Can you speak words of gospel-centered grace? See, one of the first things that has to happen is we cannot hear the voice of the thief. And I could unpack each of these. I'll just race through them. But I want to tell you, guilt is not the voice of the shepherd. Jesus does not motivate by guilt. He paid for the guilt at the cross. Guilt is when we have violated an expectation, the law or the truth. It's like when a, 
officer says, you're doing 55 and a 35, I'm guilty. Now, churches know how to motivate people with guilt, but Jesus doesn't speak with guilt. Shame, huge in our day and time. Shame is, is a deeper sense of feeling that there's something wrong with me. That would be like being pulled over by a police officer and said, you know, you're the kind of person who would go 55 and a 35. But you have those voices, don't you? You'll never measure up. You're lacking. Who could love one as you? The voice of the shepherd doesn't use shame. He died to set us free. Denial. Oh, I'm, I've really settled that. Of course, I can't go to dinner with that family member because I'd want to punch him. Pride. Oh, I'm not that kind of person. I want to tell you. Every time I say that, I think, ooh, I probably need to think about that. Self-righteousness. The sense that I can do it, that Jesus really didn't need to die for me. Who is speaking to you? Our hearts need to be tuned in to the life-changing voice of the Good Shepherd. It's life-changing grace. It's the word of adoption, born in the image, an image bearer of God by his grace, adopted to be a deeply loved, fully adopted child of the great creator king. That adoption, that love, that transformation, that's the voice of the shepherd. And he may want to speak hard things like Dr. Wold did to Mary Lynn or like a, a mentor did for me when he began to challenge my self-righteousness. You know, because I was right, I didn't think I had a problem with self-righteousness. Have you ever known anybody who pursued their own rightness to make a point about themselves? If not, let's get together over coffee and I'll tell you how it worked in my life. You see, we need to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd who calls us to that new life. Find a way. You're going to see increasing opportunities and examples for you to, in close relationship, begin to receive and begin to give the hope of the gospel to shape lives, even when it's a hard word. At Jesus, on the cross, Jesus would say, it is finished. That means everything we need has been supplied to receive. He would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, there's the conviction that says, it's because my life is out of relationship with God, not because I need simply more education or more money or more this or more that. Even when I need those things, my deeper need is to be in relationship with the God who made me and the God who saved me and the God who wants to live his life through me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God and Father, we thank you for your extraordinary love. And I pray you begin to move kindly in the hearts of everyone who can hear my voice, that we hear in this hard text, not simply something about economics, but you'd hear a call to the kind of deep and honest relationships 
that are safe because they're founded on your gospel, but they might be instruments of shaping our lives for the better, pruning us that we might bear more fruit to your glory and to the benefit of others. Father, we thank you that we are, first of all, a deeply loved people, that Jesus has shown that to us, he has established that, and we can rest in that. Father, thank you that there's a difference between conviction, which shows us the problem and points to Jesus, and condemnation, which simply isolates us. Help us to learn to hear the voice of conviction and respond with repentance and to live with a joyous transformation. We thank you that you have done great and extraordinary things. Help us to live into that and to bear that fruit to the glory of our Savior. For we pray in his name. Amen and amen.